So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the sermon is titled this morning, Come to Order, uh, because there were legal problems breaking out in fights in the church, and believer was suing believer, and this was a problem. So I did some research this week. I just, uh, I googled bizarre lawsuits just to see what's out there, and guess what? There is no shortage of bizarre lawsuits. Let me read to you a few of them. A guy named Robert Lee Brock, a prisoner in Virginia in 1995, wished to be removed from prison and placed in a mental institution. So in order to achieve his goal, he decided to sue himself. And he sued himself for $5 million as kind of a spectacle that proved that uh, he was legally insane. His crime was that uh, he committed his crime while he was drunk, and he said he violated his own religious beliefs and therefore his own civil liberties, and he sued himself for $5 million. Unfortunately, the case was dismissed, and he remained in prison. Christopher Roller, a resident of Minnesota, sued David Blaine and David Copperfield, the magicians, demanding that they reveal their secret magic tricks to him. And he also demanded 10% of their total income for life. Uh, the reason for the suit is that this guy believes that the magicians are defying the laws of physics and therefore using godly powers, which is a problem because this guy thinks he is God. So he's suing that they tell him their tricks and that they pay him for using his powers. <laughs> An Israeli woman sued a TV station for making an inaccurate prediction. The station predicted good weather, but then it rained. The woman claimed that the forecast caused her to dress lightly, resulting in her catching the flu, missing a week of work, and spending money on medication. She further claimed that the whole incident caused her stress. So she sued for $1,000, and she won. Eh? Some of you are taking notes on that. Why are you writing that down? <laughs> and then who could forget in 1992 when 79-year-old Stella Liebeck sued McDonald's because... She bought a cup of coffee, spilled it on her lap, and thought that it was too hot to be safe. Unbelievably, the jury found that McDonald's was 80% responsible for the incident. And they awarded her $160,000 in damages and then an additional $2.7 million in punitive damages. How about that? The decision was appealed and the two parties ultimately ended settling it out of court for a sum of less than $600,000. Well, hey, our society has a lot in common with first century Corinth. They were sue happy, uh, and our society is sue happy, right? Uh, we just have our litigation, and it is ongoing. The courts every day welcome hundreds and thousands of people who have their grievance, and they want justice. Well, what are Christians to think about this? Uh, what are believers to think about this? That's the sermon this morning as we form our thinking on litigation within God's church. Let's pray, and then we'll get into God's Word together. Father in heaven, this morning, as we get into your Word, our prayer is that you would take this topic, and Lord, I believe there are people here this morning uh, who need to hear what you have to say about this matter. Uh, Lord, I believe that there are people who have been hurt by past grievances. I believe that there are people who soon will be hurt by grievances, and we need to know within your church, and with the world, how you expect us to solve these problems. So Lord, our, our ears are open to you, and your word is open before us. We just pray that you would speak to us, Lord. Tell us your voice, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 is where we are right now. And it uh, begins in verse 1 by introducing the problem. It says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Uh, here's the problem. Um, believers had legal problems with believers. So Dave here uh, had a really bad deal with Paul here, and, and it, it didn't go well, okay? But here's the thing. Paul, Paul, you really did stick it to Dave. I mean, I mean the way that you handled this thing and, and what you ended up with at the end of it, it, let's just call it shady, all right? Okay, but Dave, now, you want justice. In fact, you want a little more than justice. You want vengeance. And, and you're willing to stop at nothing to make Paul pay. And so now you two come to church together. Hallelujah, what a save. But tomorrow morning, you got a court date. And you are going to let each other have it, right? This, and this is a problem, all right? So here's the thing. Walking into church in Corinth, okay, maybe felt like walking into the people's court. You remember the people's court? Because there's more than one of these things happening in the church in Corinth. I mean, they were riddled with problems and lawsuits, all right? Did you watch the people's court, Judge Wapner? Yeah? Who, who did? I'm going to refresh your memory. Go ahead. Refresh their memory. Listen, you remember this? Judge Wapner. The Honorable Judge Wapner. And do you remember the bailiff's name? What was his name? Rusty. And what did he say at the beginning of every... All rise, the Honorable Judge Wapner presiding. Are, are you getting kind of the feel of what was going on in Corinth? All right, you can stop that. <laughs> they were acting, they were acting like people act on, on the people's court. This is the problem because other people were watching. All right, so when one of you has a grievance against another, verse 1, does he dare? And notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, why are you doing this? He didn't say, could you think of a few other options? Uh, he, didn't, he didn't say, maybe, there are, maybe there's a better plan. He said, he said, how dare you do this? This is so wrong. Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, the unrighteous, so, you know, they didn't really have the highest view of their court system either. In fact, back then, they, a little crooked, maybe a lot, corrupt, bribes. Uh, okay, so do you dare go before the unrighteous? You're going to trust that court system instead of the saints? Uh, saints here meaning the church. The Bible uniformly calls believers saints. It's a positional title, okay? Or do you not know, verse 2, that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Okay, he starts to get deep here, and he starts to make his case. Um, but let me begin by saying this. You will have a grievance. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen with someone who is a fellow Christian. It may have already happened. But there will be a conflict that will lead you to feel extremely, extremely angry, enraged, furious against a fellow believer. In fact, this grievance may be wrong. You may have a justifiable right to your feelings, but God has an opinion on how you respond. God has an opinion on how you resolve this grievance with a fellow believer, even if it gets all legal. Several grievances within the New Testament can be listed. 
Uh, who can forget when Paul had to confront Peter to his face because he was acting out of line with the gospel? Publicly. Uh, and what about Paul and Barnabas when they disagreed over whether they should bring John Mark on the next missionary journey? And it got explosive and they parted ways. It was a grievance. In Philippians 4, verse 2, Paul said, I entreat Yodia and Syntyche, two women, to agree in the Lord. In fact, you help them. Uh, so you will have a grievance. It may be with someone in this room. It's coming. And God cares how you respond to it. Here is the first point. The the first thing that God's word has to say when you have a grievance with a fellow believer. You can jot this down. Solve it in-house. Solve it in-house. He begins to make his case here, and his case gets deep. I mean, uh, his case is very complex and very fascinating. So look at verse 2. He says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? Uh, So he starts making his case by saying, do you not know, are you not aware of the future reality that's coming? Do you not understand that the saints, meaning you, uh, will judge the world? He's talking about the future. Uh, He's talking about the church and God's plan for us in the future. And he's making an appeal based on the future reality that you change your behavior in the present. This one raises eyebrows. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? All right, first of all, we're supposed to know this. And second of all, what on earth does it mean? I think there was some of this going on when they read this letter for the first time. Do you not know this? And they were probably like, no, I really never heard of that. What is he talking? Am I supposed to know that? I'm going to get in trouble. Well, Daniel 7.22 actually mentions, says this, Until the Ancient of Days came, which is Christ, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So the kingdom of God was part of what the Jews learned growing up, but but it became clear in Christ. They knew that God's kingdom would envelop the earth. They knew that they would share uh, in, in somehow wielding authority with God, but they didn't quite know how that was going to happen until Christ came. Uh, I believe what is being talked about here is uh, it's called the millennial kingdom. And maybe you've never been taught about this before, um, but we believe that Christ is coming back. And it's an amazing doctrine. In fact, the whole of the Old Testament got the world ready for Christ to come. The whole of the New Testament is getting the world ready for Christ to come back. And when Christ comes back, What happens is he rules on the earth in what's kind of a golden age for a thousand years. And guess what? The saints rule with him. Um, A thousand years is a long time to live, which is why we believe in the bodily resurrection of the saints prior to the millennial kingdom, and we rule with him. However, there are still people who are mortal, who have bodies, they live, they die, and they've got a choice to make. This is called the millennial kingdom. At the end of the millennial kingdom, sadly, most of the people on the planet decide they would not have Christ as their king. And that's when the earth and the sky roll up like a scroll. That's when the Lord descends to judge. That's when everyone comes back to life. And that's when everyone is judged. And that's when heaven begins. And that's when hell begins at the end of the millennial kingdom. So we believe what he's talking about here is do you not know that the saints will judge the world, is that we will somehow share with Christ in that new world. Uh, Somehow he will give us responsibility and authority. And he goes on to say that, do you not know that we're to judge the angels? Um, So 
first, somehow helping him in this golden age, um, in Revelation 24, he uses the phrase, the saints came to life and reigned with him. Um, Matthew 19, 28, we're going to put it on the screen. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the, get this, the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And that doesn't mean that there's only these 12 seats and we all have to kind of share, okay? This is, a, this is a way, a proverbial way of saying that he will entrust some of his authority to the church. Do you not know that we will judge angels, it says, uh, which helps us clarify some wrong thinking about angels here. First of all, we don't become, become angels when we die. Maybe you were taught that growing up. It doesn't happen. You are never going to have a halo above your head. I'm sorry if you were looking forward to that. Maybe that's been your dream since a child when you dressed up like an angel. I don't know. doesn't happen. Angels are different. Okay? Also, there's no such thing in the Bible as little baby angels. Angels are, are grown-ups. Okay? Um, and they're not swarming the skies of heaven. Um, somehow it says here that we will rule over or govern, which the word judge can mean govern or rule over, um, the angels. This is pretty remarkable. Sometimes I've wondered why the angels and the demons, which are really fallen angels, why do they care so much about this world? You know, why are they so heavily invested in what's going on down here? Don't they have better things to do? Uh, well, this is probably it. Uh, they are either endeared to us because one day we will judge them, or they are enraged at us because one day we will judge them. Um, and all of this is in the future. Paul makes his case, do you not know where this is going, that that you will help the Lord exercise authority over the earth? Do you not know that even angels, you'll decide among them? Uh, and if the world is to be judged by you, he continues, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And how much more then matters pertaining to this life? So the point is, in light of these future realities, solve your problems in-house. Everything about this is backwards uh, the way that Corinth was handling their problems is so out of line with, first of all, God's plan for the world because God wants the world to be saved. And here they're ruining their witness. And so the world is going to be judged because the Christians can't get their act together. And that's what infighting does. It gets us off mission. But it's also ruining his plan for the church. The church is supposed to come to share in the kingdom with Christ. Well, here they can't even get little things done. They've got to go to the world for judgment. It's all backwards. Check out verse 10. Paul raises the stakes here in verse 10. I'm going to preach this uh, next, uh, next time I am in 1 Corinthians, so we're just touching on it today. But verse 10 says, Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. So greedy and swindlers would kind of be these two guys. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Do you get that? Here's what's going on. He's saying, you are acting like those who are hellbound. None of these people who do what you're doing are going to get to heaven. So you need to stop acting like those who are hellbound and start acting like those who are going to inherit heaven. Start having a heavenly perspective on your problem. Start having a heavenly perspective on your brother. Start having a heavenly perspective on your suffering and change your behavior accordingly. The first point, how do I handle legal problems or grievances with believers? We'll solve it in-house. Here's the next point. Jot this down. Maintain a godly witness. Maintain a godly witness. Okay, check out verse 4. Continuing on here, he says in verse 4, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing 
in the church. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Maintain a godly witness. This is defaming the name of Christ in front of non-believers. And so you have to maintain a godly witness. Now, verse 4, maybe some of you have a different translation and you're looking at your Bible and you're like, my Bible didn't say that. Did I, did I get a wrong Bible, a bad one? Was there a misprint? <laughs> this is a tricky verse to translate. And so verse 4 um, is translated, if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? But the New American Standard translates it this way. So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? Now, both of these translations take this to be a question, all right? However, the NIV takes it to be an ironic statement and says, therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. Um, now, the NIV is less likely. It's less likely that this is a, an ironic statement. Um, it's less likely that Paul is saying, well, even take the newbies and let them try the cases rather than the courts, um, because that sentence structure becomes really strange in the Greek. So it is more likely that the ESV is correct, and it's a question. If you have these cases, why would you bring them before those people who have no standing in the church? Why not rather entrust people within the church to help you solve your problems? And then he says, I say this to your shame. Um, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough? To settle the disputes. Now, why is it? You know, they're big on wisdom, right? First few weeks, we talked about wisdom, 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 and they thought they had it, and they don't. Uh, so he's saying to them, you don't even have somebody wise enough to handle these cases? He's like, oh, you big and bad? You can't even help people with this case? Yeah, they got to go outside the church. Huh? Oh, you're so smart. Do you, can you hear what he's saying here? Can you hear how he's taking them down a few pegs? Uh, they thought they were all that. And, and Paul took a swat at them and saying, this proves that you don't have the wisdom you think you have. All right, they, here's the problem. They saw themselves as wise. In fact, take, check out this picture. These are the magi. This is how they saw themselves in Corinth. Well, we, why is Paul talking to us? We should be talking to him. We've got it all together. And Paul's like, ah, uh, you want to know what Paul saw at Corinth? Here's what Paul saw at Corinth. He saw this. <laughs> Hockey fight. One going after another, and there you are walking around thinking, oh, we're so smart. We've got it all together here. No. And then he says, this is already a defeat for you. It's wrong. It's a defeat. Uh, check out this picture. This is what Paul sees. That's you. you you've, in fighting, handling grievances with fellow believers, taking them to That's you. It's wrong. And then he says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So rather than sue, uh, he says the victim here, uh, which one of you is the victim again? Uh, Dave, Dave was the victim. Rather than sue, um, you know, you should rather suffer wrong than disgrace the gospel in the eyes of the world. And yet, do not defraud your brother. You are defrauding even your brother. They're both guilty and they both have some work to do. So maintain a godly witness. You can jot this first sub-point down. Uh, how? Well, I'm willing to suffer wrong. Uh, I'm willing 
to suffer wrong. Everyone in Corinth here gets a thump on the head. The leaders get a thump on the head because they're not helping them to solve the problems. Paul gets a thump on the head because he defrauded his brother. Dave gets a thump on the head because he's taking him to court. They're all messing up. Okay, and each person here has a lesson for us because who knows which position you'll find yourself in. Is Tony going to be stuck in the middle? He's going to be the one who's got to try and help people get along? Uh, or, or who knows? You know, Maybe Jacob's going to be the one who is wronged, and he's going to be in that situation. Let's talk about first the plaintiff. This is Dave. This is the guy who was wronged. Have you been in Dave's position before? Uh, have you been in the position where someone hurt you? Uh, have you been in the position where someone wronged you? Maybe it involved money. Maybe it involved your pride. Maybe it involved your reputation. Someone took power from you, your dignity, your freedom. And it hurt. You were angry. How did you handle it? Maybe you're there now. There's a lesson for us when we, found our, our, when we find ourselves in this place. There's a lesson. We have to be willing to suffer wrong rather than react in a way that hurts the gospel and that hurts the church. Now, it's not, it's not that your feelings are wrong, okay? It's not that what this person did was right. It's that you're not the one to take your own case, you don't get to represent yourself, right? What you do is you understand, yes, I've been hurt. Yes, what happened was wrong. It was very wrong, but God knows. And so I'm not going to represent myself. I'm going to recruit the law offices of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. And here's the thing. It is a crisis of faith, 100%. Do you have the faith to believe that God knows, and that God will, in his time, whether in this life or in the next, make that wrong right. See, because if you don't believe that God is big enough or smart enough or strong enough or good enough to take your case and to handle it, then you've got to step up to the lectern. God's not saying it. It's not happening fast enough. The pain is too much. i got to do it. Give me the file folder back. I am my own representation. All right, here's the thing. If you do that, you will go 0 and 50. You will lose every case you take for yourself. Do you get that? When you in the flesh, for your own pride, go after the person who hurt you, you will lose. And you will hurt God's church in the process. You will be blinded to the damage you're doing to the kingdom. But if you leave the file folder on God's desk, and you say, Lord, you know the time, you know the place, I'm giving it to you. You will go 50 and 0. You'll never lose. And you think you can, can first of all, justly handle the case? You're there with a fly swatter trying to get even. And God's stepping back there with like a sledgehammer like, let me take it. You see, God is just. Do you get that? God is more just than the least corrupt judge in the planet. And God is wrathful, and, and it says in the Bible, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So God is hurt too when his people hurt each other, okay? But God knows the best way and the time and the place to help this person 
See what they did. Are you willing to suffer wrong? That's the question for the plaintiff. Are you humble enough to trust the Lord? It will require patience. It will require faith. But you know what? You get to display the character of Christ. Because when he was before his accusers, when he was unfairly injured, when he was beat, when he was kicked, when he was spit on, he made no reply. He just took it. Why? Because he was a weakling? Because, because, because he knew that God would make it right. He knew that God would overthrow the forces of darkness at the cross. And look at what happened. Okay, let's talk about if you find yourself in the place of the defendant. This would be Paul. This would be you, um, and I'm sure you have an explanation for why it happened. But this would be you did something wrong. This would be, and whether it's in the legal sense of where there was a business deal and you, know, you don't understand things changed and I couldn't help it, but bottom line is you did something wrong. You broke a law. You hurt someone. Um, that's you. Maybe you find yourself in the place of the, of the defendant. Um, God knows that it was wrong. God cares that it was wrong. And even if on paper the whole thing got sorted out, uh, God's books are still open. And so here, the person who defrauded his brother, even though legally, well, the court said this, um, it doesn't matter because God is a higher authority. And one day this is going to come up in judgment. It is always the wrong thing to do when you have to break laws, when you have to cut corners, when you have to compromise, when you can't honor your debts. Uh, it's always the wrong thing to do. And so here, the defendant did something wrong. And the challenge to him, the challenge to you when you find yourself in that position is you have to go to the person and you have to make it right. Preferably on this side of heaven. Because it is going to come up. God is going to make it right. Do not defraud your brother. Now this does bring up more questions, okay? So maybe in your case, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's not a believer that you've got a legal thing going on with. All right, well, what do you do then? Um, may, maybe it's like an organization or like an insurance company or maybe it's like a corporation or maybe it's your work that, you know. So, so how, do, how does all of that play into this when there's like legal things going on in my life? Uh, well, let me give you some guiding principles on how you can maintain a godly witness even when all this legal stuff is bursting out in your life. Okay, be willing to suffer wrong. That'll give you patience. But next, jot this down. I'm willing to follow a godly process. I'm willing to follow a godly process. I would say there's three things, according to this text, that you can do that will help you to maintain a godly witness when there's legal stuff happening in your life. You might want to jot these down additionally. These are sub-sub points, just to keep you on your toes. Uh, you can jot this down. Bring it before the elders for wisdom. It doesn't matter, even if it's a non-believer, uh, it doesn't matter if it's an insurance company, it is always a great decision to go, come to one of our elders and to say, listen, I got this court thing, um, all right, I just want to run it past you, and I want to know if there are verses that apply uniquely to this case, uh, and, and I want your advice, uh, tell me what you think, all right? Listen, that's always going to help. It's going to give you perspective. And I know some of you in the room, you have this going on right now. So question, have you sought out spiritual counsel? Uh, I mean, you've got the attorney uh, and you've got all of your friends, maybe people you work with who are giving you their opinion on, on what you should do. But have you just said, you know, to one of our elders, hey, listen, just tell me what the Bible says about this, anything. Tell me what you think. Um, that's a great place to start, okay? If you want to maintain a good witness during the case. All right, here's the second thing I would jot down, sub, sub point two. Uh, try and settle it outside of court. If it's possible, 
be a peacemaker. Uh, even if you have to give a little more than you thought you should, okay? Do you know that when you extend grace to someone in the name of Christ, that God's going to honor that? Uh, do you know that that could be your way of showing this person who's not a believer the love of Christ, you know? I'm not saying that you have to completely be run over. I'm not saying that you have to be a doormat and anything they want. You just have to give, okay? But I'm saying there are ways where you can react in a way that shows the love of Christ. Try and settle it outside of court. Be as gracious as humanly possible, even if it costs you something you're willing to suffer wrong, um, and maybe even let the person know, hey, listen, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Christian, and I want you to know that I believe 100% that this is not right, okay? Uh, but my God is gracious to me, and I'm trying to be gracious with you. Say that to them. Um, try, and, try and show them that you are laboring to be Christ-like. Number three, sub-sub-point, follow through in a way that maintains a positive Christian witness throughout. So let's say it has to go to court. This is just a catch-all. Start to finish every hearing, every meeting, every step along the way, even when it's over, strive to maintain a positive Christian witness. So you don't get to the point where, well, we tried it out of court, we talked, they didn't want to go for it, I gave them their chance, and now it's on. And, and now I get to, don't get to that point. Throughout, you're willing to follow a godly process. Let me give you a few more principles here that help you with how this whole godly process thing works, especially when it comes to legal issues and authority. Understand that the Bible teaches there are concentric circles of God's authority in your life. All right? It starts in the family. God puts you under the authority of your parents. And in the home, the parents have the authority, and it's for the good of the children. All right? You are under the authority of your parents. But that's not the only authority. Um, if the parents violate their authority and injure the children, well, then there's other authority. And if the church finds out something's going on, then you have the church to appeal to. And God gives you loving elders and leaders in the church so that they can protect the flock. And, and if the home thing just isn't working out and the spouse is doing something and you have no control over it, then it's the job of the leaders in the church to intervene and to help in the name of the Lord, to help uh, to get things back on track. But sometimes that's not enough which is why there's the home, and then there's the church, and then there's the outside government, starting with municipal, local, and then state, and then even, even the national. That's a protection for you. Uh, and the Bible teaches that God, he made government for your good, okay? Now, you're under all three simultaneously, all three authorities, but you have to figure out which one to appeal to. For example, if in your small group next week, you confess to your small group leader, I murdered somebody. Forgive me. All right, all right. Wow, great. Got that off your chest, okay? <laughs> but it's going to get out and you are going to go to jail, perhaps for a long time. Because you're not just under the authority of the church, you know. You are under all three at the same time. And likewise, you're protected by all three at the same time. So here's the point. You are allowed to use the court system. Uh, when laws are broken, we are not to be passively watching the world go into anarchy. We can be the voices of truth. And if there is something wrong that happened to you, you absolutely, it's God's provision for you that you could go and you could use the government. Uh, God, uh, Paul used the government throughout the book of Acts. He made his case. He would appeal sometimes that things that were being done were wrong. But he always maintained a godly witness. 
In fact, there were some people where if Paul wanted to, even after they like beat him uh, wrongfully, he could have gone for their necks and he could have gotten them fired. He could have gotten all the way to Rome and he could have ruined their life. But he didn't. He didn't. He was just, all right, walk me to the edge of the city and uh, show me that we're all good and, and then we'll move on. So he went out of his way to maintain a positive Christian witness. Um, for you too, there are going to be times that you find yourself, you can't work it out in the church. You, you can't work it out outside. Of, it's going to court. Okay, Just make sure that you maintain a positive Christian testimony throughout and keep it as a godly process. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, get this, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, there is a wide range of decisions you will have to make to be a peacemaker. But you can't do everything. As far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men inside and outside the church. Hey, ask yourself this. Is there a grievance in your life right now? How are you handling it? Can you honestly say that the way that you're responding, the current course that you're planning to take is going to maintain a good, positive Christian testimony? Um, can you say up to date, up to this point, you've really gone out of your way to be a peacemaker? You've even, you're, you are even willing to suffer wrong, to give a little more than you thought you should to try and be a good witness. Uh, or, or, or maybe are there, are there some things you could have done differently? Are there some things even right now that you're kind of planning, some of the advice that you're getting, you're just like, I, I, don't, I don't know how I feel about that. Uh, I, mean, I know maybe within the bounds it is allowable, but I just, my conscience is, I don't know. Well, commit in your heart. Make the decision now that no matter how hard it gets, no matter what the other person thinks and does and says, as for you, as for your side of it, you're going to honor the Lord. Start to finish. In fact, even if there are things that you should not have done, you're going to make that right. You're going to humble yourself and give the case file over to the Lord, and you're going to wait, and you're going to see his deliverance. And here's where it's all heading, okay? You've got to try and solve it in-house. You've got to maintain a godly witness because it's all heading to this. You can jot this down. I am willing to forgive. I am willing to forgive. There must come a point in your own heart when you choose to forgive. Even if the person was 100% wrong, guilty, and they were, they're denying it. Forgiveness is a crisis. It's a choice that you make in a moment. And forgiveness means I'm going to release this person from inflicting the punishment on them myself. Forgiveness means you wounded me with a nail and I'm pulling it out and I'm putting it in my pocket. Now, lack of forgiveness means I'm pulling it out and I'm either going to come after you with it or I'm going to keep hurting myself and reminding you about it. Look at what you did to me. I can't believe what you did to me. You, can you believe what you did to me? Forgiveness means you put it in your pocket, you heal, and you let it go. It's very hard but it's very Christ-like. Luke 17, 3 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. 
All right, you're just not taking it. You're going to tell the person this was wrong. I, 100%, you shouldn't have done this, but you know what? I'm going to forgive you. Colossians 3, 12 to 13 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one of you has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Let this guide your thinking. You ready? There you were in God's courtroom, guilty on all charges. Guilty of sin, guilty of treason. These were capital offenses. You deserved to be judged. But Christ came in, and he stood in your defense, and you were forgiven. And you were allowed to go free from God's court of law. God forgave you, and you were guilty. So you should forgive others, even when they are guilty. And, and when you get to the crisis in your heart where you choose that I will forgive this person for what they did, all right, well, then the process is a lot harder because there are going to be flare-ups along the way in the future when it, it comes up again. And you don't, you got to see this person and here it is again. Okay, but you have, the process drives you back to the crisis when you first said in your heart, I forgive. But if you don't have the crisis, the process is never going to get you to a place of healing. Then this becomes a ball and chain around your ankle, slowing you down, crippling you for life. Then if you refuse to forgive and refuse to leave your grievance with God, you're allowing this person to hurt you over and over and over. And you have given them more power over your life than they have ever dreamed. You have given them more jurisdiction over your heart and your family and your future and your judgment than they could ever have gotten. Because you're refusing to forgive. The price of unforgiveness is much higher than you could ever imagine. The pain of unforgiveness is much more damaging than anything the person could have done to you initially. A thousandfold is the pain you're bringing on yourself for not forgiving. You've got to get to the point. And let me give you three things by way of your motives to factor in as you are trying to work through these processes. Number one, don't seek revenge. Don't seek revenge. If your motive is revenge, you will never get to the place of forgiveness. Check out this picture. If you become this person, the punisher, and you want to make them pay. Uh, I like the title at the top, Vengeance Has a Name. And maybe that's your plan. Your plan is Vengeance Has a Name, and it's my name. And I'm going to make Paul pay as long as it takes. I'm going to make him miserable. I want to see him suffer. If that's your motive, you will never get to the place of forgiveness. Don't seek revenge. Next, don't seek profit. Don't seek profit. So not, you want to make them pay financially. Check out this picture. This is you. When you get to this point, it's very difficult to turn. All right? I'm not saying that some lawsuits won't involve money. You may have a legal right to some compensation, okay? But then when it gets spun into how much you could be making, and let's talk about the damages that you really incurred when your pinky toe got sprained in that car accident. Boy, we're looking at at least two years' salary for your damages, right? I mean, that pinky toe, it's a little crooked. I've seen it. Wow. And who knows? Down the road, it could become arthritic. And, and an arthritic pinky toe, I mean, boy. Don't seek profit. There may be a reasonable thing, a settlement that you can go after. But when it turns into out of control, out of hand, plundering and pillaging of someone, it's wrong. 
and it doesn't matter if it'll get through the courts. You know it's wrong. God knows it's wrong, so don't do it. Don't seek revenge. Don't seek profit. And last, do seek justice. Fairness, uprightness, God will honor you if you truly, from the bottom of your heart, forgive and you just want justice. And you're willing to wait. You're willing to wait, heaven forbid, if someone did something to you or a family member that was painful and wrong and even life-altering, you're going to forgive. You're going to do as far as you can in the legal process within the confines of the law to seek just justice, and you're leaving the rest to God. If you do that, God will grow you. If you refuse to do that, it will destroy you. This morning, I think it's wise for you, as you look into your own life, to think about the person who perhaps has wronged you. To think about the grievance that you can't let go. To think about the process of healing or litigation that's in the future. It's wise this morning to give it all over to the Lord. And I want to give you that chance right now. As you close your eyes and bow your heads, I want to give you the chance to put this into practice immediately. Let's close our eyes. And just between you and the Lord, just between you and Him, I want you to share with Him what it is that you've been feeling. Father, there are, there are names of people who have done damage to us. And right now, many people, they're just thinking of a person. They know the person. It's the person who popped up in their head the minute this sermon started. And Lord, it's been hard for them to get past what happened. And yet this morning, your word speaks to them. Lord, my prayer is that they would give this person to you by name. Lord, that they would choose to forgive right now. Lord, that they would release the punishment, the consequences of sin to you. That they would trust by faith that you're a loving and a just God. Lord, that you're going to work it out far better than they could ever hope to. And that you're going to use this to make them more like Christ. Father, maybe there are some here who they're the ones who are being wronged now. And they need wisdom. They need patience. Lord, they need to know that you are on top of things. That you are going to stand by their side and be their advocate. Lord, they need to express faith that you can even work through our legal system doesn't hinder you. It doesn't hold your hand back. Father, give them the faith, the tremendous faith to believe that you will see them through this, provided that they maintain a godly witness all along. And Lord, maybe there are some this morning who they have had problems with their conscience for a while, and they know they've done something wrong. They can't get away from it. And Lord, that is your spirit hounding them to make this right. Maybe they need to be the one to go back to revisit what happened, to commit to do whatever it takes to make this right. Father, your judgment court will come. They will answer for their conduct. And as far as it depends on them, however they are still capable of making this right, I pray that they would, by faith, go back, that they would correct what was done wrong. Lord, we trust that in making these decisions, you will honor us, you will favor us, you will make us stronger than ever as a church as we solve our problems for your glory, according to your strength. We pray this all in Jesus' name.